Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Such and such doesn't suffer fools gladly. That phrase has always bugged me a bit. It's like someone has just squeezed a pillow infused with an admiration-scented vapor that then hangs in the air for just a second, leaving you to wonder, who is this remarkable personage? And who are these fools so unworthy of his regard that he doesn't even have to suffer them? Well, maybe he suffers them, but not gladly. And yeah, it's usually a he. I don't suffer that phrase gladly, but it's trying to get at something. It's asserting that the world is divided between affable idiots and those whose intellectual rigor leaves no time for idle chit-chat, or that the shared social and now social media space is mediocre, coercive, and corrupting, that queer thinking is independent and often lonely. When you put it that way, it's a little harder to argue with. My guest today doesn't suffer fools gladly. His pen is sharp and uncompromising, even when he turns it on himself. Wesley Yang writes essays mostly about outsiders and outliers. Some try to fit in, some try not to, some succeed, some fail by succeeding. His new book of essays, which contains some of the best writing I've ever read, is called The Souls of Yellow Folk. It was just justly named one of the New York Times 100 Notable Books of the Year, and I'm so glad it's brought him to think again. Welcome, Wesley. Well, thanks so much for having me. I suppose we ought to address the elephant in the room, which is the title, which is sure. kind of what about a third of the book is about, I would say. Yeah, there's um, there's three essays that, that are about 25,000 words in total. Wow. And so that's like a kind of slim you know, pamphlet that you you buy at Urban Outfitters uh, on this particular subject. Look, the book is in a part about the invisibility, the cultural invisibility that's imposed upon Asian Americans, or they're, they're sort of virtual, there's a kind of void where they're supposed to be within the culture. And anytime you want to address the subject in a magazine form and in a book form, the challenge is always, how do you address this invisibility without having that invisibility imposed upon it? So you want to mm -hmm. have a title that people will notice, right? that will cut through the clutter, and that will, something that I do a lot in my writing is that I sort of, I will posit something, I will sort of assert it and also withdraw it at the same time. Okay, and so the title right. kind of fits into that kind of rhetoric, where of course, like it's an invocation, it's a reference, it's a riff on a classic work of literature referring to uh, the condition of, of black America um, right. at the nadir of Jim Crow, right? Um, and it's written by uh, a world historical figure and a great writer in W.E.B. Du Bois. Right. And of course, uh, a comparison, you know, to take on that kind of project in earnest would be strange and somewhat delusional. And <laughs> it isn't what I set out to do. Um, uh, you know, it, it, there's a kind of like irreverence toward the Asian American identity that, that I think is already built into this identity that is a constructed artifact that was coined by some sort of activists and racial entrepreneurs in 1965, and that has ever since then, sort of in the late 1970s, it became part of the U.S. Census, and it's applied by default onto uh, people that come from the largest continental landmass on the planet, right? Um, from more than 20 different nationalities who don't share a single language or culture, or there's a diversity of experiences there where... It's clear, like all racial categories, whether it be white, black, Hispanic, are artificial constructs. But Asian American is an artificial construct to the extent that it may always remain so, and, and, right. that it, and there may no be no actual underlying reality to it. So, like, why are South Asians considered to be Asian American? Right? Like, uh, a group of um, sort of South Asian entrepreneurs in 1982 sued the federal government in order to be reclassified as such. And so there was a survey that was done in 2012, which was the largest uh, opinion survey of Asian Americans called the Rise of Asian Americans by the Pew Research Foundation. And what they found was fewer than 15% of the respondents use the term Asian American to apply to themselves. Mm. So like the vast, vast, overwhelming majority of people that fall under this umbrella category simply don't apply the term to themselves in, for the most part, because 70% of people who are classified as Asian American are foreign born. And right. so they, you know, if they're asked to identify, they identify by their specific nationality. Um, right. And so, you know, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates has this phrase, like, people who believe themselves to be white, right? Right. Sort of pointing out the, the sort of uh, the incoherence of that category. 
and the historical constructedness of it. And, you know, Asian Americans is just like orders of magnitude more constructed, Even more constructed and, yeah. and, and, and less referring to anything really substantial, which is part of the reason why the subject never really sort of coalesces into something that has any impact on the culture. And yet, I mean, the reason that it's worth writing about and the reason that you're writing about it is that there is this sort of... It's for that very reason. It occupies this like liminal space within our conception of, you know, America still fundamentally operates with like a bipolar conception of race where... You know, we're divided between a white supermajority and uh, a black minority. And of course, that thing has been in flux for a long time. We're in the process of like metabolizing the fact that we're becoming both less white and less black and that we face within our lifetime a future uh, where sort of the, the white majority is something that is, you know, that falls into abeyance and ceases to be. Right. And things are in flux and uh, in large part because lots of Hispanics and lots of Asians have come to this country. And we haven't quite been able to figure out how to metabolize that, how to process it, and how to like fit it into our picture of the world, such that, you know, there was a there was a great headline which illustrated this. Uh, it said that like this Silicon Valley company is even more white and male than you would think. And but if you mm-hmm. look at the actual like text of the article, what the article disclosed was that the company was 35% Asian. It was actually like plurality Asian. Interesting. And they were simply folded into the category of white male because our notion of what it means to be a minority is uh, the historically disadvantaged minority rather than like a minority that sits differently within our schema. And now we're at the very beginning of the moment where it's starting to produce various volatile effects within the culture, some salutary, some less salutary. And so, like, it's, it, it is a good moment to, like, address the issue, and yet the kind of cultural void still remains and, like, must be addressed. And so the title is a kind of reference to this, you know, to the question of, of soul, right? And right. so, like, something that emerged um, in the kind of Harvard Asian American lawsuit. So right now, sort of, like, there's a group of Asian Americans. Yes. And, of course, it's not, it's not, they're not representative of all Asian Americans. They're a kind of specific faction of Chinese Americans who are who have really no part of the Asian American project. The Asian American project was conceived by sort of left-wing activists in the 1960s and then it was then expanded as an all-encompassing racial category by the government. But like, you know, the the, the Chinese Americans who are contesting affirmative action are they're a sharp-elbowed ethnic lobby who says we have particular interests that will serve us and we no longer have to be deferential to the demands and the implotments of what our racial constitution is going to be based upon what other groups impose upon us. Like we are free to say Harvard is discriminating against Asians. And um, that's a claim that they've made. And there's, you know, the strongest sort of circumstantial evidence they have in that favor is the fact that like Harvard evaluates all of its students on a number of different indices. And one of them is the academic rating, which is your grades and your test scores and your AP classes. And the other is your extracurricular rating. And the third is your personal rating, mm-hmm. which is a much more sort of amorphous, suggest, uh, subjective uh, tallying up of your qualities like your effervescence, right, about your likability, about your your moral character, and so on and so forth. And what the lawsuit has shown, and it doesn't look like the lawsuit will win, but one of the purposes of the lawsuit was to do discovery and make public right. how the process is functioning. And one of the things that was, was disclosed was that Asian Americans have by far the highest academic indexes on average, and they actually have more extracurricular activities than their white counterparts. Mm. It used to be the case that their white counterparts were more well-rounded in the sense of having more activities. This is no longer the case. That's no longer the case because right. as a group, I guess the formula has been figured out. Like They've this come is to understand that it's yeah, necessary yeah, for yeah, them yeah, to yeah, become yeah, more well-rounded yeah, and now they exceed their white counterparts in yeah, how well-rounded yeah, they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. But they lag all other groups, including whites on the personal index. The underlying kind of subtext of this is that yes, Asian Americans may do all these activities, but they do it in a way that is sort of rote and checking out boxes. They're doing it in a way that is effectively soulless. And so to invoke <laughs> the souls of yellow folk is to summon up all of these comparisons and analogies 
and assumptions that are mostly faulty, right? Like relative to like our understanding of this bipolar system of race in ways that are already embedded and expressed in the way that we talk about things, right? Right? Like these are white men. Like this company is even more white male, even though it, and in some cases, these companies are majority Asian. Right, 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 right. right. On the other hand, these companies that are majority Asian or that have, or plurality Asian, in many cases do in fact suffer from a dearth of Asians in the leadership. So, so like the data also shows that like Asians are the least likely to be promoted into upper management all throughout America. Yeah. So like in addition to being people who are heavily overrepresented at our Ivy League colleges, one of whose sort of whose explicit stated mission is to train the leaders of tomorrow, they're also the people who enter into these elite segments of society and are for the most part regarded as a kind of white collar workforce rather than the leaders of these companies. It was very strange to me that some of the people who read the book seemed to take the title in earnest and not to sort of read the book for what it was. And so what the book is is not a kind of synoptic account of the condition of Asian Americans, but a way of using the liminal quality of the Asian American as a kind of prism and a kind of knife through which to cut through and explore and probe various forms of racial gaslighting and bullshit that has now become pervasive in our culture. Right. So it starts off with these sort of like Asian essays, but then it moves on to explore other aspects of things that are of interest to the Asian American, like the microaggression and so on and so forth. Sure. Right. Like even within the section that deals explicitly with Asian Americans, you you present many facets of that prism. We get Eddie Huang, uh, yes. who is, you know, like no stereotype anyone's ever heard of. And mm -hmm. we have that wonderful section in the one essay where you're like, in case I am, you know, it is not clear where I stand, mm. fuck Confucianism, fuck filial piety. Yeah, I just don't think that, and, you know, I describe a kind of fragmented experience. Yeah. And a fragment, because I think that actually, like, comports more, more closely with most people's actual experiences. Right. Like, you have these sort of, like, ideologues of the Asian American identity that much of what they say is adjacent to or convergent with the, the you know, things that I end up saying. But like there's a difference in the kind of totalizing quality and the kind of like ideological approach that I just try to approach these things raw and I try to approach them in plain language. Sure. And I don't try to freeze it into a freeze like a very dynamic and a very conflictual set of situations into just a set of dogmas. And sure. and so that's the that's the diff that's the reason I think why, like, you know, I'm seeking to sort of revive, revivify these things and make them felt by those who ordinarily would not necessarily have any sort of entree into them, but also to, like, right. articulate in the ways that, like, those who can empathize with it from direct experience can have the wound renewed, right? Yeah. I think it does have a kind of therapeutic effect to see it done on the page in a certain way. So what Asian Americans have in common with one another is that, they, you know, most of them are immigrants to this country, or they're the children of immigrants. And so they're newcomers to America. Hmm. And that's meaningful. Uh, and then the other thing is, they do occupy a place that has not been properly assimilated into our overall picture and our understanding of America, even now. And the sort of the proxies that people use to describe this, you know, have to do with like media representation and all that. Because like media, there's a kind of circle there, right? The media representation, the absence of it, has to do with like our incapacity to conceptualize this thing, right? <laughs> right, Within right, right. our comfortable racial framework. And the question is whether or not it can actually exert some kind of what I think will be salutary pressure, although it's risky, too. Like anytime you're going to mess with our racial constitution, mm. especially at a moment like now when so many things are up for grabs and so many things are contested, often by like very bad people, right? There's risk, but there's also opportunity in that. The Asian American occupies this place where he knows a little bit something about the, the irritation of the white male, surrounded by demands for reparation and having meritocratic notions can, entirely under siege to the point where sort of right. UC Berkeley made it a microaggression to be policed, to say, I think the most qualified person should get the job. Right, right. He, so he egalitarianism also, trumping 
meritocracy. And, but he also knows something about the resentments of the social justice warrior at the same time. Here's the key thing. Tasting of the frustrations of both, he is denied the entitlements of either, mm-hmm. right? Because he's not really conceived as part of the people of o- color oppressed coalition. Oppressed underclass, yeah. Right. And, but he's not ever quite the uh, authoritative figure of the uh, white male, although that is an authority that's under siege at the moment. What, what is the historical role that these people that came to this country in the millions over the last few centuries will be, or the last few decades will be? And the, the thing that I suggest <laughs> is that the Asian American, and of course it can only be a suggestion because we actually don't see it in reality yet, because of this liminal position that he occupies, can become the universal man. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and this is this is a, a sort of a joke that I make is that like America needs an Asian American president. Right. And of course, people people smile or they chuckle a little bit when I say that. And it's like, well, why are they smiling? Why are they chuckling? Right. But we all know why they are. We can't quite articulate it or we wouldn't want to articulate it. But it's like, hey, there's nobody out there to occupy. Well, it. Of course, I'm smiling because I'm doing the I'm I, in my head. I'm doing the you know, I've got the I've got the list. Right. It's like. Uh a woman uh-huh. and then maybe a Jewish person uh-huh. and then you know like I've got this historical ranking of what the political exactly. system is likely to tolerate exactly know? but why would it not tolerate this group so there's no good reason <laughs> there, there is no good reason but there is a reason yeah. right and and the reason isn't one of hostility or offense it's a different kind of reason and once you fig- start thinking about what that reason is then you start th- knowing the nature of the Asian American, and then you start knowing the nature of like what is being invoked when one, for the most part, one doesn't think of this group, but when one does think of this group, qua group, that is kind of articulated and penned in people's kind of like psychosexual imagination, right? Uh, Within our racial imaginary, right? Once you start thinking about that, other things can, you start pulling on those threads and other parts of the, other forms of bullshit start to crumble. Two little examples uh, yeah, that I talk yeah, about. Yeah. Like there aren't, a, there aren't a ton of examples, but like after the sort of um, the Halloween costume email and the, the, the freak out at, uh, at Yale uh, involving Nicholas Christakis being screamed at by a student and just being completely unable to say anything. He just had to sit there and take it because that's the, that's the rule of the intersectional stack that, that is right. operative there. And that was a moment where it was, you know, they knew what the rules were, right? And they acted in accordance with them. So what did they do? They, they, you know, they hired their first Asian American dean. And so what did they do at the University of Missouri after the, you know, the sort of the racial freak out over there? They hired their first Asian American dean. It's almost sort of like mortifyingly too obvious mm. that you would like default to this person to catch the javelins who mm-hmm. is right. who is not white and who is not black right yeah it's almost too obvious and and yet like no of course it makes perfect sense there's a reason whether or not it was just a coincidence maybe they're planning this ahead of time i think they probably were but but, but like it's sort of a yeah like deviously brilliant politically neutral <laughs> move or neutralizing move they, they were planning on doing it ahead of time but like if there are other <laughs> candidates you yeah. know they i think they're assurance that this was the right thing to do in this moment when we have made whiteness visible is there a group that can be an honest broker whose very invisibility (laughs) right can be the basis of a new kind of racial constitution right whose very invisibility can give them a weird centrality suddenly because here's the person that like nobody really loves right (laughs) but nobody really fears you know, yes, we fear China, but that's you know that's that's different. Well, and there like, is there is the there is the academic panic as well that you write about. Yes, what if they take over Harvard? You know, etc. But yeah. but at the same time, that we there's a sense that they that they they simply won't be allowed to, right? <laughs> okay, right. I'm not saying that it would be good necessarily if they took over Harvard, <laughs> right? Like it would it would cease to be much of what Harvard is, and that's Harvard's argument. And and the argument is sort of like you know diverse along many different dimensions. And uh, including race, and we should have the discretion to do that. And there's a reason for it. I understand that reasoning. I'm not saying that, you know, there's something necessarily totally invalid about that. I'm just saying that, like, in order to do that, they've had to say Asian Americans are soulless in a systematic way over the last couple of decades. And, like, that was part of the collateral damage of this. Because it gets very hard to maintain something that makes a legitimate claim to being meritocratic when you do have this structure where you have 
underrepresented minorities on the one hand, and then you have an overachieving minority on the other hand. It just puts too much pressure on... Because you can't just come out and say racial diversity qua racial diverse it's got to be about you know balancing well so they're not allowed to balance disregarded minor or no, i mean you can't they're not allowed to balance okay. <laughs> right. and they say a diversity is a value in itself okay and that is what the court said was okay all right diversity along a, a variety of different dimensions and this was based on the harvard plan but then why historically have to go the route of like desoulizing Asians. It's just a funny. Why not just call them? Why not just call that part of diversity? It's just a. It's just a funny quirk. It's how it happened. Yeah. It's just a funny quirk because because Asians are breaking the curve on the all measurable dimensions <laughs> right. to the extent that it just becomes necessary to undercut them on the personal score. I was just um. I, you know, I was I got an email from a friend of mine who did um a lot of interviewing for Harvard, and you know he he explained to me what his experiences were. And he said, um, look, it was my job to evaluate the personalities of these people that I would meet. And I interviewed a lot of kids who were great, had looked great on paper and were actually great who didn't get in. But none of the Asian kids ever got in that I interviewed. And there was no systematic divergence on average between their personal qualities, between how likable they were, between how self-aware they were, between how kind they were between how conscientious they were on the basis of an hour-long conversation. None of them got in, which means that all of them were downgraded by people working in administration in the admissions office, despite the evidence that they received from him having spent an hour with these students. And it's like, one should be able to talk about like the extent to which real and perceived differences have to do with like real differences in culture. One should also be able to say, when you've crossed a threshold where it's like no longer tenable, it's no longer tenable. And, and like the data behind that is like pretty, it's pretty strong. And so like I wrote a piece called you know, Paper Tigers that was basically mm-hmm. saying, you know, the, the sort of, you know, Asian cultural patterns, if Asians want to be more visible in this culture, will, will have to change, right? Right. People will have to rebel against them. That's something that I said so, some years ago. But like even I am able to like look at this new data that has emerged and say that like something else is going something on. Something else yeah. happened on like yeah. that went far beyond any kind of like defense that would rely on the previous claims. Yeah, this is just sort of <laughs> bullshit discrimination on a on bullshit grounds. It's like just a matter <laughs> of it's a matter of arithmetic. If you have all of these different constituencies that are grandfathered in and that have to be served, and one of those constituencies is of course like rich white legacy students who sure. look they helped to build the institution. I'm not I'm not going to just say it's totally ridiculous that you shouldn't have such uh, preferences because it's a private institution and it relies on the, the creation of this kind of loyalty. Sure. But something had to give, and what's going to give under, under those circumstances? You have these sacred constituencies, and then you have this non-sacred constituencies <laughs> right, right, right. of minorities who came here after 1965, and thus who did nothing to oppress anybody else in this country, and whose own history in this country is one of oppression. And so from sort of Asian American people, there will be all of this kind of deferential hand-wringing about like how we are relatively privileged and so on. And of course, you know, in many ways we are, but there is a group of sort of mostly kind of like first generation immigrants from the mainland who they have their own cultural preconception, right? Like they come from societies that pick their students by having them take a test and if you're above a thir- certain threshold, you get in. And if you're below a certain threshold, you don't get in. Right. I don't necessarily agree that that's the best way to go about choosing. But when they come here and they're 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 subjected that's to the this, game they're playing. And that's the game that's they're playing, and the it's game it's, that's, that, it's a part of yeah, our game, yeah. but it's not the whole of our game. Right. And so when they come here and they're just saying we have a right to pursue our interests. Mm-hmm. Whereas like Asian Americanism is all about like deference as a junior partner in a broader people of color coalition, such that like they're going to like collude and uh, participate, you know, with people that want to put out, blast out headlines saying, this company is more white male than you think. Yeah. Right. Just the simple, like just the crude assimilation of this group of minorities and newcomers into the country into this other category. And, and like that's the kind of gaping incoherence 
that we see in our race discourse. Yeah. And it's like these Chinese Americans are taking action. They're doing something. They're taking action to kind of like point out and like expose the incoherency of this system, which sort of speaks of its of how well-meaning it is and ends up stereotyping a whole group of people as essentially soulless, right? Right, right. this At the venue where they care about and desire most. And of course, like the fact that like Asian people fetishize Harvard to the degree that they do, that's a function of their cultural programming from like their own home country where there's like one university that everybody has to get into. Right. And it has to do with like all idolatry of like brand name status markers. You know, America is rich in very good colleges. There's hundreds of places where you can go to get an excellent education. And so, you know, that's also something that, like, Chinese Americans have to learn. On the other hand, like, what was revealed in this lawsuit is of value and is of interest. It's brave and it's difficult to try to have conversations about things that we don't have language for. Like, Mm. this is not, we don't have a vocabulary, really, for this conversation. Like, you're putting yourself and your your thoughts out there in a a landscape that is extremely complex, very thorny, and and very hard to navigate. It's a landscape that's already kind of colonized by these, like, pre-existing understandings that are quite wrong, right? Right, right, right. But they they have been sort of grandfathered in, and they have kind of institutional weight behind them, no matter how absurd they actually are. And so, to just be like one dude seeing this, you know, this obvious incoherency and pointing it out, okay, like that's kind of the role that I've assumed for myself because there is no counter movement that's right. that I, that, that like I am a part of. I am just a kind of gadfly, right? But like, the, you know, first the gadfly emerges and kind of breaks up, you know, what is essentially a corrupt structure. And then other things may, you know, eventually at some point sort of like use that opening to like generate something that is closer to reality. And and so like I'm involved in that kind of preparatory work of demolition. And there are those who are sort of like really kind of invested in the structures as they are and they will, you know, they will not be uh, they will not be friendly to that work of demolition. When you do that kind of work because you're sort of you're doing some of that as well in these conversations now these the writing you're doing about microaggression um, as well and, and political correctness. How, when you do that kind of work, when you become that gadfly, you protect yourself, or if that's the right word, against ending up in stupid frozen binaries, you know, with the opposition to whatever you're well, being a gadfly I mean, I, it, with. It, you know. It's really hard to do. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like it's not a moment that where things that don't take a hard stance in one direction or other is really are, are welcome at all. And you know, we're in the process of like ousting this from the discourse. And so the work that I'm doing now is just trying to like defend some space for individuals to just be told that their perception that things are going crazy is correct. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Their perception that, that like normative behavior, <laughs> right, is being like routinely violated by institutions that used to be the gatekeepers of normative behavior. Right. That's real. That's right. The difficulty is that anything that you try to say gets annexed politically, yes. you know, and so one can very easily find oneself behind a kind of political you know, paywall or it, whatever. It's by, defi- it's by definition <laughs> like a kind of lonely role and one has to like sort of ju- just like commit oneself that like, you know, part of a writer's role is to risk being a pariah. Right, sure. And Not um, that you're necessarily a pariah. I'm not saying that point. I am, but like <laughs> one risks being a pariah. Yeah, yeah. And that that's like at the core of what a writer is supposed to do. They're supposed to say the things that need to be said and that aren't being said. What's the point of saying the things that are already being said by everyone? <laughs> right. All of the kind of virtuous things that might be said in the moment, many of which I tend to agree with about our president and so on. How could one not? Like those things are very well covered by everybody else. And, and indeed, you have one essay, by the way, about in the book about microaggressions where it's like I see your thought evolving on on this topic, if I take it chronologically or at least in the sequence of the book. But you have one essay in the book on microaggression where you take a fairly sympathetic stance, you know. One should be sympathetic, right? And and sort of the term sort of emerged and it it diffused as quickly as any kind of academic, sort of novel academic jargon has ever diffused. And why, why did that happen? It happened because people found something that was true to their own experiences 
what they recognized within it. Well, and also because other people found something that threatened them in it. And in my view, the microaggression is just an attempt to create some event that you can catch someone on and say, aha, you have exposed the, you know, the deep rot that sits in your soul and that sits in the souls of all L like, white, white people. Like when oh. I smiled when you talked about a Chinese president or <laughs> well, Asian president. president. Well, well, no, everybody does. So that's the point. And <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, a, yeah. there's a reason why they do. I'm not saying that's a microaggression. Yeah, yeah. But it's about creating this kind of, you know, this trap where you can catch people in and where you can invoke administrative power on your behalf. On the one but, hand, but also, as you write, it's also an acknowledgement of the but, fact that many people's experience but, is of aggressions that they can't, no one has a name for. It, right, you know, but like, beyond that, of course, yeah. it's things that aren't even really aggressions. It's just actually the thing, it's the love not given, right? Right. right. It's the, uh, that's ultimately what they're trying to get at. What they're saying is, is that like, I'm less loved in this country by default on average. There's, a, there's more welcome that will come to other people than will come to me. Right. And so I, I quote, you know, the blog of a, a very sensitive young man uh, named Aaron Schwartz when he was at Stanford and he was 19 years old. Yep. He wrote about like being in a, you know, he's, he's at Stanford and he was in a computer science class. And so like most of the kids around him are Asian. And he describes sort of saying like, I just realized today that like I'm much more racist than I ever thought I was because of course I'm a progressive and I grew up, uh, you know, among progressives. Uh, and and of course, anti-racism is you know one of the kind of chief tenets of my of my of my commitment. And yet, when I looked around at the Asians at me, they sort of merged. Their individuality kind of merged, and I wasn't really paying attention to them. And I would only pay attention to the white people. Yeah. And I would only pay attention. Now, I, is this a universal experience? I don't know. But he does describe like sort of being seated next to an Asian man whom he who doesn't have an accent but somehow he perceives him as being other and having an accent, and he just kind of brushes him off. And he says, well, I knew that if he was white, I would not have brushed him off in the way that I just did. Right. And, and so no aggression was made there, micro or otherwise. It was just, I declined to give the same regard that I might have given to some other person. And this, this is a matter of increments. Ultimately, though, you know, I do go on in that piece to refer to the authoritarian potential right. of, of saying that, yeah. like, you know, trying to create a regime of policing people on microaggressions, but in the end, saying, trying to dictate that people that, have that to people, regard me. People have, have to, to regard other people, <laughs> yeah. and and you can see that it, it's not going to just end at the level of race. There there are a million other dimensions by which people judge other people to be wanting, and so like there's this infinite regress, and it doesn't mean that we should leave everything as it is, yeah. or that we shouldn't reflect on these facts and the various forms of inequality that are that are kind of discoverable if you do data regression anal analysis, right? Sure. Like, you know, sort of like there's a book called Beauty Pays that looks at the premium that like attractive people and and, and the same, you know, comes with height. height you know, I yeah. think like fewer than like 10% of men are above six feet tall, but like 30% of CEOs are above 10 feet tall. Like all of these things, we can discover these disparities along Multiple dimensions, of course, race is a big one of these dimensions where these disparities are discoverable, right. but there's a million other dimensions where they're also discoverable. And we're at a moment where there's a kind of cascade toward sort of liberalism just seems to have no immunological defense against any kind of egalitarian claim at mm. the moment. Mm. And so as a result, you have the creation of a kind of administrative leviathan that's in the process of being constructed. And in my view, Despite what I've just said about how microaggressions are real and their effects are real, this is an instance where the cure is far more dangerous than the disease, right? When there is the emergence of like a kind of system of surveillance and like in the end, those things that become so expansive in their construction of harm and it's so expansive in their construction of wrongdoing sure. that it encompasses almost anything. In the end, it's going to leave discretion in the hands of, uh, of authorities to decide whom to punish and whom to reward. And it's always the case that this, this will, it's, it's sort of acceptable to say that this will redound to the detriment of the very people that it's supposed to protect, sure. which I think that's true. That's like sort of politically correct to say that as a form of defense, but it's also just bad in general. Like you shouldn't want to tyrannize and surveil people and leave them open to a kind of arbitrary attack at any moment, uh, like sort of empowering for the most part, 
right? Right. Like a pathological minority who launder, <laughs> you know, their own individual psychopathology as a form of virtue, and and we're giving them uh, we're giving them a kind of leverage over everybody else in the society. Uh, in a way that is like potentially really dangerous, not just in what it summons up in response, and we know what it has summoned up in response, but like also just like in what it is, like if it sure. goes on to become what it has the potential to become. It's so charged I with see that. I potential. see that potential. I totally see that potential. You spend a lot of time thinking and writing about this. Do you? Does your research suggest to you that this massive bureaucratic apparatus is in fact being summoned into existence, yeah. or that it has the potential to? It I has mean, the potential, and there are people who are working tirelessly day and night to summon it into existence. Right, and that there and are they, not, there is not sufficient counterbalance. They in, are a minority, okay, but a minority can tyrannize over a majority. Sure, this is something sure. that we've learned, um, and they are a minority. And most sane people are hostile to it. But people who care more about the issue, this is just like a basic asymmetry, will tend to get control over that issue. Whereas other people whose, whose desires are fractionated across different domains, right? And, uh, uh, you know, and right. the only people who sort of care about it, you know, they then become by default like problematic people, right? Like on mm. pushing back. And so that's the kind of well, cascade. This, this creates an the kind of dialectic in which we're stuck. You're talking about how this is a time when nuance is not particularly, you know, valued or, or acceptable. And yet, if a nuanced mindset is more vulnerable to exactly. colonization and domination by exactly. a fascistic minority, then, <laughs> then we're screwed if, if indeed we are nuanced thinkers. <laughs> well, like, <laughs> that is to say, we cannot win that war without becoming. But this polarized, was the question like, throughout the Cold War, yeah. right? Like liberalism, because it was open, was yeah. inevitably weaker than these authoritarian movements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the that was yeah. the kind of debate, and of course, it happened under you know nuclear competition and you know a, a revolutionary movement rooted in the Soviet Union. Those ideologies are not operative in a similar way, but like mostly within kind of like certain institutions, like media institutions, nonprofits, places that that are being colonized by cohort after cohort of recent college graduates for whom this is the ground for their being. These are like the basic like notions of kind of like free free speech, due process, rule of law. They they only encountered the very hostile critiques of them and they never encountered the arguments themselves. Right. And so like we're in this process where like the person who goes through the kind of traditional Western canon, right? They read Hobbes, they read Locke, they, they read social contract theory, and they come to understand how like through experimentation, through the 30 years war, <laughs> right? Like we arrived at concepts about how to live together that actually proved to be very fruitful and that helped to resolve the kind of getting into the same bullshit over and nature, over and over again. Right. Yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. so, and, and so those people have actually not, they've only seen that stuff described as the kind of, you know, disguised will to power of, you know, of, of white men that presents itself as universal, but in fact is the partial will to domination of all others, rather than actually like a very functional means for people to live within diversity, which helps to describe why we have been able to accommodate so much diversity within societies that are governed by an Anglo-American constitution, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, rule yeah. of law. Yeah. We're in the process where like, it is normal to be the baseline as an educated person for people who've gradu who graduated like 2013 on yeah. is just to see that in these very stark terms as a thing that has to be undermined, subverted and destroyed from within. And they're in the process of doing it. The analog that I always think of is in fact an East Asian one. I long ago read a fairly dense book on the Cultural Revolution in China yes. and you know how they would go in the name of egalitarianism, going into hospitals and removing doctors and replacing them with peasants, you know, because that's fair, you know, or whatever. And then suddenly your surgeon has no medical training. How it is possible for that kind of totalitarianism to come from an entirely different direction? You know, similar similar ideas are on the march. There are people working tirelessly. I mean, obviously they're not in control, but the question is whether institutions will defend themselves against them. And I see that they have this kind of inherent vulnerability to them. Mm -hmm. They just don't know how to defend themselves, and they lack the will to defend themselves. And whether uh, 
whether Asian people can defend them better, I think they might be able to. It's just a kind of shot in the dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? No, but it's an interesting but idea. But like, yeah. I want there to be some, you know, potentially positive scenario. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of, sort of, you look at the work of Francis Fukuyama and then some other people that I'm writing about. And that's part of like what my project is right now. I'm not seeking to write about Asian people, but yes, like yes, yes. I am. That's actually all that I'm doing because now they're like these Asian people who are really interesting thinkers and, and actors in the world. So there's a guy that I'm going to write about called Andrew Yang. Have you mm. heard of him? He's I, the, uh, his name is familiar. But he's, I... he's running for president on a UBI platform. So he has the best, most memeable platform of anyone running, Okay, which is, you know, I will give you a thousand dollars a month right 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 <laughs> i will give you personally a thousand dollars for month. the listeners that's un universal basic income yes maybe I, yeah but at the same time like yes of course we need a figure like this to emerge who can talk about the future right and who can and who can make that claim not as just some like asshole demagogue right but like as a data-driven asian man right and saying like look i've looked at the figures uh, and you know you read the mckinsey report about what what's going to happen to automation and and jobs like there, there's a crisis that's that's coming, and all my friends in Silicon Valley, and I have many. Of course, I'm I'm sort of ventriloquizing him. Right, right, right. The, look, the orthodox economists, you know, they all say what they say, right? But like my friends in Silicon Valley who right. are building this technology right now in the present, none of them doubt <laughs> that this is the future, and as a result, my friends in Silicon Valley like are buying bunker like bunkers. Right, like they're 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 using kind of old nuclear silos in order to build places in which to escape. Right, the consequences of the technology that they're in the process of building. Now that could be wrong. That could, you know it, it it might not be right, but he's he has it. He has like a vision that may or may not be true, and that if it is true, one should be preparing for it. Right, and and so like well, and cred on both sides, you know, on on many sides. Yeah. So know. like you know, this is an example of like the Asian man as a universal figure, and of course you know it's a it's a somewhat Gonzo. Version. It's a crazy idea, but right. it, it uh, but I it's, a, I, it's I a Gonzo version of it. But like we elected Donald fucking Trump president, okay? <laughs> yes. And um, yes, we did. And so like all Gonzo ideas are on the table now. We have a whole generation that has become revolutionary for the simple reason that. There's this thing called cost disease, right? Where like schools and housing and other aspects, just for reasons that we don't quite understand, get more and more expensive. And thus the kind of middle-class standard of living that was available to their parents is simply not available to them. Right. And as a result, they are becoming, uh, uh, you know, the, you know the, I think that a majority of them are hostile to capitalism. Uh, a majority of them uh, are, you know, friendly to socialism. And when you look at women in that age group, it's, it's, it's even higher. It's like 70% right like identify like as far leftists and but like a long and of course they're, they're a part of a movement that is inevitable that, that was going to emerge but part of this movement is also these kind of like identitarian currents that target institutions that let us live together in peace and under self-government you know that's not in the book it's kind of a the book is a kind of prehistory of what was going to emerge i looked at these like quirky phenomena like the shooter the the pickup artist and so on these weird subcultures and these unusual there's no overarching vision in the book and yet the book i think is a document of the decade that led up to this current crisis in which we're present there's two pieces on the pickup movement, uh, which emer yeah. emerges initially out of just kind of lonely men on the internet trying to connect and trying to reverse engineer how right. how to get dates, right. and then but then morphs and metastasizes in very surprising ways. Yes, I mean I don't catch the way that it metastasizes into a kind of deranged wing of the alt right, right? Like a decade later. But like, I, I look at what it is, right? And it's like, yes, we're gonna take a kind of data-driven approach. We're gonna approach human interactions the way we do video games. And we're gonna discover the algorithms that underlie sort of human motivation, behavior, and psychology. Yeah. And, and sort of, we're gonna use a kind of melange, a kind of very clever, and in many cases, very intelligent melange of sort of evolutionary psychology and the various ideas about how to manip manipulate human behavior that are floating around in the ether of the culture of that time. Right. And fairly described as a misogynistic sure. movement. I mean, just kind of women want a strong, evolutionarily want a strong alpha male they to come and tell them what to do. They want, they want a male of higher status right. than themselves. Right. And I mean, that, that this characterizes the, the beginnings of this 
pick right. up. Right, and so it was all about like demonstrating your higher value and doing that through the neg. And but and like, the neg for the audience is like basically sort of a diss, not diss. Like it's, a, it's an underhanded. To, yeah, it's an it's like a backhanded compliment that's actually a bit of a dish whose purpose is to lower the self esteem of the person you're speaking with. And, yes, the woman, and of course make them <laughs> come to regard you as in relative terms uh, to have higher status than themselves. And you know this kind of this kind of entered you know the I think it, and this is the thing that entered the culture at large, as you know. But like you know, if you read Stendhal, right? If you read in the right in the back, black, like you know, he had an understanding of the neck, right? And they right. they sort of like reverse engineered and created in their own kind of like nerdish autistic way. And what is interesting is you know it's a group of like com computer scientists and engineers who sort of like approached the human human social interaction as a kind of big data problem. Right? And they kind of sort of solve it. It kind of kind of sort of works well, for some of them. Basically what like, it is, it's just a hack, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like you have the mentality that I'm, I'm playing a game in my social relations. You know, you sort of like inoculate yourself against the, the, the fear of rejection because people who play games are used to to losing, right? right. And, then, and right. then you get better and you develop your skills. So it takes this kind of like very masculine, kind of like skill building, like nerdish, like sort of Asperger-y, Burgerian <laughs> approach to and, and and whether or not there's a way that you can sort of because we all have this idea that like human relations are about spontaneity and about like real connection and emotions and is there a way to like hack that and 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 so they figured out a way that sort of like got them what begins as kind of like contrived and 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 sort of like based upon bits and routines a person starts to sense the like the flow of human interaction right and like human like real connection can emerge from that but because it's occurring within this context of like you and your bros playing a game where you're all keeping score like that's all that becomes this kind of like homoerotic competition in which women <laughs> are only counters um, you know, in the game, like t then takes over, and of I course, mean, if real human contact emerges, like real connection emerges, then it introduces a kind of cognitive dissonance that might send you spinning off right. from the game. And, and of course, like, that, that typically happens to <laughs> yeah, yeah, most people yeah. who play. But there's yeah. this notion in the game of one itis, right. right? Which is like, you know, the the error of thinking that any particular person is or any one. real connection yeah. is meaningful. Um, and that's why, of course, it is like openly and explicitly, but also like deeply sociopathic. It's crazy. But yeah, um, yeah. it was it was a kind of I'm not saying it was inevitable, but like it was an emergence of the Internet of its time. And it was an emergence of the kind of sexual dynamics of its time, which have since like iterated and and degraded and degenerated into a kind of like warfare between the genders. And the, the Me Too movement is a kind of registration of a general culture-wide rejection of those kinds of things. And it's in, you know, in its motivations, it's entirely salutary. Right. But like in the, in the methods that it adopts, right, it becomes more problematic. Harvey Weinstein definitely deserved yeah. everything he got. The issue is this, can we define what is prohibited and what is not prohibited? That's the issue. We can argue about where the line is, right? But like there actually does have to be a line where so long as like I do X, Y, and Z and I don't do A, B, and C, I'm in compliance and I can't get in trouble for those things. Right. And what many of these people seek is virtually unlimited discretion where there is no actual line. It's just a matter of what one feels. This is like, a, this is like an explicit point of a certain kind of feminist ideology, that of a certain kind of carceral feminist ideology that's rooted in the work of Catherine McKinnon, who stated all of this quite explicitly 20, 30 years ago. And, and that kind of... Um, that the individual feelings are... are that there's them, no other referent in terms right. of determining a guilty mind. All of these legal concepts of the rule of law do not apply to the specific case, right? And it, it's all grounded in this notion that kind of that like rape is something that all men do to all women to keep them in subjection. And that's the kind of classic formulation uh, of a collectivist notion of rape as a manifestation of patriarchy rather than an individual crime that can be judged uh, according to rules of evidence, right, of like right. living in a liberal society. And like bit by bit, there's been this cultural project beginning on sort of feminist blogs and spreading to the sort of the, the media in general via the vector of the Me Too movement where people are increasingly becoming convinced of arguments that seemed very radical and, and very 
troubling to those who cared about the rule of law 20 years ago. Because ultimately what happens is when you have an expansive construction of a crime that makes everything technically illegal, what what almost always happens is, is that the state then has discretion and people have discretion to target the most vulnerable. Sure. Right? And disproportionately, and this is something that one sees in, in sort of uh, you know, Title IX uh, investigations and so on, is that, you know, is like black, Hispanic, and minority men are, are much more likely to be targeted. And so, like, that's one aspect. That's the politically correct thing that you can say. But it's also actually just kind of bad <laughs> to, <laughs> right, to right, right. Uh, just in general. And, and, we shouldn't, and we shouldn't say that fairness and due process, and why does it take courage to say this? We should not, it should not take courage to say that it applies equally to white males as it does to everyone else, as it does to everyone that lives in the society that is governed by law. Right. And yet, somehow, it, it requires some kind of courage to make that kind of statement. And that's the kind of situation that we're living in. Because you have to be willing to stand there in a hail of bullets. I mean, you have to be willing to stand there and just be screamed at with, you know, the deepest, most, you know, primal rage. And that's, that's a very hard thing for a lot of people to do, you know? Yeah. And so it's as It's not a result, easy for me. I'm not, I don't particularly enjoy that. So you were asking previously, like, is this kind of progressive coup, is it going to win? And the reason that I think that it will, at least it will to the point where the full consequences of what of the institutional changes will be felt by people and then it will, then they will change. But there, there'll be a lot of harm done, right, in the process. But the reason I think that it will is just that like, people just can't take that. <laughs> Unless you want to militarize your defense against it, in which case you become the opposite you become, of that. You, know? you become, you know, you become the very thing, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the very dangerous seesaw that we're stuck at. Things keep escalating. Things that began, uh, it's just kind of like, look, a few terrorists, a few Middle Eastern terrorists, like we're able to get America to wade into Iraq and to torture people and to and to throw some of its like most treasured values out the window. Right. And it's like a few, uh, uh, you know, a few like problematic speakers seem to have gotten have gotten us into a position where like right thinking people are ready to like put like fundamental values like into the shredder. And it happened so fast. It happened on social media. It colonized minds. And um, and the people who like, even though there may be a kind of like quiet majority who regards this as disturbing, there's like there's always like there's at most like five people on social media who who are willing to push back. That's it for Think Again this week. This one got into some really contested territory kind of conversation that can break what you thought was your tribe into pieces but i share wesley's feeling that it shouldn't have to be like that we should be able to talk without going to war as he put it what's the point of saying the things that are already being said by everybody else three more guests coming up before we take a short break until the new year next week it's ruth whitman a british transplant to the u.s who wrote an op-ed last week in the new york times called everything's for sale now including us it's brilliantly written and it hit really close to home for me please take a teensy bit of time uh, and go rate and review us on itunes if you're enjoying the show uh, or on your favorite podcatcher. it's easy it's fun and it helps a lot bye catch you next week